0: Hello,
1: Gregory Sam. Hello, Luke Hancock. So, for those who don't
0: know you and have never heard of you, um, just uh, could you perhaps introduce yourself? Just uh, give a quick background story of who you are
1: and what you what you do. I started off in business, um, doing things to help change the world for the better. When I was eighteen years old, opening up the first macrobiotic, natural food, organic food restaurant in London, in association with my brother Craig. And that was the first place that people ever ate brown rice, or seaweeds, or sesame seeds, or pumpkin seeds, things like that. And that led to a shop so people could buy, eat the food at home. The shop led to wholesaling so that other shops could also stock these products, and also so we could import Things like organic brown rice, Um, we went to bring five tons, which is a lot for one little shop. Published a couple of magazines on the course of it to inform people on aspects. One of the magazines was C, the Journal of Organic Living. So we covered lots of things besides food in there. Um, I ended up with a very large company with hundreds of tons of things going in and out every week and losing money, Um, but I ended up leaving that. Um, in the hands of my brother and launched the first ever veggie burger and christened it, created the product. That did really well. That was my ticket out of the food business, which gets boring because when it's successful, you end up dealing with lots of people in suits who couldn't give a damn what they're doing. They're just doing it. And I then retired, took an advance installment on my retirement for a couple of years, found out about chaos theory, open the first world's first ever shop, only ever shop dedicated to chaos theory and cuz what appealed to me there was not just the wonderful fractal images like this one on the wall behind me, but the awareness that we self-organize or that complex systems throughout this world and the universe self-organize, whether that's a rainforest or a weather system or the way we feed people in a city like London, it all happens from the bottom up without that top-down control. And for me, the message was a sociological one, because I knew the scientists would not get into anything like sociology or politics. They don't go in that area. Um, And that led to me writing the book, um, initially called Uncommon Sense, The State is Out of Date, now retitled The State is Out of Date. We can do it better.
0: I'd like to talk to you about that book today. That's what we'll be talking about, okay? Yeah, and so, um, well, The State is Out of Date, I guess it says it in the title, but what, what are your beliefs, kind of, just in a very general nutshell, kind of, what is it you believe about the state? Um, and, and, I mean, is, is this a, an anarchistic view, or even anarchist? Or,
1: or, or, I never use that term. I don't like that term. It's like calling somebody gay when they're lively and full of energy. Um, the word has lost its meaning and it's associated with people throwing bombs and such like. I mean, when I first took the book to uh, the Anarchist Book Fair in in London, the UK's major distributor of such books, libertarian or anarchist or books about freedom, was AK Distribution. Um, They were very interested in the book when I sent it to them when i saw them at this book fair they'd had a chance to look at it and and they said no um because the only thing that this anarch- that everybody who worked at this distributor had in common was a belief in the violent overthrow of the state and my book is very much not about anything like that it's about you know nonviolent direct action which we used to call fluffy protest and it's about, it's a very positive book about how well we can do it and... The, do you actually want to get rid of the state entirely or is that basically... I think the state, I don't want to get rid of it, I want to let it wither away as a result of its own uselessness, rather like the Soviet Union dissolved without anybody actually attacking it physically. and well, not just my belief, but it's a belief that I I learned, I took some courses in it, I also read Lao Tzu when I was very young, who influenced me heavily, he's sometimes called the world's first anarchist, Um, is that coercion as a tool for modulating social behavior doesn't work any better than it does when you beat your child for staying out too late or using a a swear word you don't want him to, or you beat him over the head because he hasn't finished his dinner. It's not the right way to do things, and that's the only mechanism the state has, is do this or we're going to damage you somehow. And that maybe works when you're trying to stop Hitler from invading um, and stopping people from killing each other. But when you apply it to education, health care, housing racial integration you always end up with results that are not what you were looking for
0: but i mean is the state necessarily bad and necessarily going to use coercion can we not have a good good state i mean is it just we've gone down the wrong path of statehood but actually statehood in general is is not necessarily a bad thing i mean is is
1: the state always bad um ineffective is and fueled by ignorance is the word I'd rather use than bad. I'm sure there are some really good intentions that politicians have had over the years. And and they've gone into things with the best of intentions, but not gotten the result they were looking for. And the original raison d'etre of the state was to protect us from other versions of themselves. That's what they do best. And we didn't have a state. I mean, we forget... That or ignore that we had civilization, commerce for thousands of years before we ever had any evidence of a top-down coercive state. That began around 2600 BC, the first evidence of a a coercive state. But for up to 10,000, possibly 20,000 years before that, we had evidence of people living civilized lives, with art, commerce, trade going on between them. Without a coercive state? Then. Without a coercive state. I, I I went... I had to go back to the British Museum just to see if I had gotten it right. When I went to their Sumerian, Mesopotamian rooms, and they've got several rooms charting that, just back to about seven or 8,000 BC. and you see all their, their artifacts, their pottery, their friezes, and there's no evidence whatsoever of a state. There's one little picture of a guy with a crown on who is captioned as a king, and what he's doing is feeding flowers to sheep. Um, and you, Then you get up to 2600 BC, or 2000 BC really, then you start to see Soldiers, swords, people being trampled under chariots, and all of that. And that's just kind of began with Sargon of Akkad, who went out and with an army of just a few hundred, and he conquered 20 plus cities in Mesopotamia, leveled two of them to the ground, called himself Sargon the Great. And once that happens, of course, you then need if you're a prosperous city doing trade, you say, "Well, we need some guys with swords to protect us from this," and you start paying them. Of course, they are the only ones with swords, and that generally ends up with those people being the state.
0: And then the state, of course, expands and starts not just protecting people, but also running, I don't know, sewer and systems, systems and, and these kind of things. But, but you were saying before you think um,
1: politicians are,
0: are ineffectual and um, not doing things
1: well. They are. Um, When you look at all the things that we treasure in this world, whether it's international air travel or food, the technology of communications and video and telephones, um, ship travel, canals, the underground system, buses and trains, it was all done by us, by human beings meeting the needs of other human beings. And there's an awful lot. And then you look at the things that the state has had a hand in, and they're all the things that we have problems with, whether it's our food supply that was geared by the state towards providing meat three times a day for everybody. Uh, You have a situation now where every farmer in Europe, virtually every farmer in Europe and North America, loses money. They need government subsidies to stay in business, such is the government involvement in the food supply. Um, You look at the where they become very involved in health. Now I like the concept of the National Health Service but it's being run by pharmaceutical companies and, and rated on how many drugs were prescribed and we have herbalism and many many natural systems of healing have been either banned or made very very difficult to get into by raising the bar you have to have a certificate in most parts of America to actually touch somebody in a healing manner, to massage them or anything like that. It's, it's madness. We, we complain a lot about our educational system, which is very managed by the state. Uh, we don't complain about all the things that we do. They, they work quite well and sustainably, and they continue to do so. It's not necessarily because the state
0: is mucking it up. Might it be because those problems are actually very difficult to deal with? I mean, for example, if you have a broken pipe in your kitchen and you don't know how to plumb, you call a plumber who's a professional who lives in real That's right, that's right, places. yeah. And uh, if you have a broken leg, you don't just go, I'm going to heal it myself. You go to the doctor and get it fixed. That's a right. That's body. right. I mean, on the same note, don't we have politicians who are professionals at dealing with those problems specifically for that reason, that they are the professionals and they live and those problems and they know how to fix it, even though maybe they're unable to do so because the problems are so big? Is that
1: well, what? you're more likely to find that politicians live off of problems than fix them. They tend to institutionalize them and have departments of housing, of welfare, of social security, that thrive upon the problems. And, and they never have to schedule, okay, we're going to disband our organization once we've sorted out this problem. We have a system, I mean, core things like crime, um, social disorder that the police deal with, they too thrive upon those. The more crime... The higher police budgets are, and that's not a, that's not a good mechanism well I mean
0: if the state is so ineffectual and so useless and uh, dealing with the general problems we uh, have, you know why why does everyone automatically assume we need them why are they why are they so dominant and everyone's so subservient to them and happy to have them i mean it, could it, could it be an act, that kind of natural order that the state is actually a natural system kind of almost built into our DNA i mean when you look at uh, any kind of ape apart from bonobo, which I think is the only exception, they automatically assume this hierarchical structure with the violent, coercive, dominant alpha on the top and the betas below I mean, is, is, is it not natural for us to fall into that order and automatically have the grand alpha at the top of the politician, the president, the... Uh,
1: well, uh, no. <laughs> We've had so many instances of operating without that system, and whilst the coercive state might have started 2,600 years ago in Mesopotamia, it took 2,000 years for it to reach Rome. It then took another 600 years for it to reach the British Isles. And it took another 1,000 years for it to reach North America. And we had systems where we had governance, certainly. we, We agreed as communities on rules and sets of behavior, things you didn't do, things you did do, uh, with the emphasis on not having victims. But you know, it's not something that we have always had. And the reason that we tend to think it's the natural order for mankind is because it's been going on for a few years, whether that's a few centuries or a few thousand years in some places. Once it's been going on that long, we think this is tradition, this is natural. In China, for over a thousand years, they thought it was absolutely natural to bind women's feet into these weird shapes. We thought that it was absolutely natural that, that the whole universe revolved around planet Earth for a couple thousand years, because that's what it looked like. And once we've endured something, for a few generations, you tend to think that's the way it is. That's the way it must be. As a, as a child growing up, you see what adults are doing. They've been around here for so long. You think whether your parents are fascist, racist, socialist, or absolutely green earth savers, you think, yeah, this is, this is the natural way. This is the way it should be because they must know.
0: If it can be another way, I mean, when I've talked to people about this concept of a no-government system, a yeah. no-state system, the immediate first thing that people say is, what about the police? Yeah. If we don't have a state, we don't have police, and if we don't have police, what all does to hell? I mean, I've heard of, um, for example, there's this, there's this Native American guy, John Fire Lame Deer, and he had this great quote, which I can't remember uh-huh. of my head, but basically he said, before the white men came and civilized us, we had no prisons, and so we had no yeah. criminals. Um, and, uh, you know, he was saying that when someone needed something, rather than being forced to steal it and then turn into a criminal, they'd be given by, by the tribe. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know if it was in your book or I read it somewhere else, but um, there's some African tribe where when, uh, when someone commits a crime, rather than berating them and putting them in jail or yeah. whatever, or, you know, hurting them, they would sit around them in a circle and each person in that tribe would say beautiful things about that person, mm-hmm. why they were such a wonderful person, and, and, and you know, help them, rather than hurt But obviously in our giant mega cities and the seven billion population planet, this isn't a feasible scenario, I, I think. So, so, you know, is there any real viable alternative to a state-run police system? I mean, can, can, we, can we all get along without that?
1: Um, yes, going back to your, your example from smaller societies, that indicates that our dna is hardwired to sort things of this nature out and you had another example was in the german tribes because they were never conquered by the romans so top down coercive control came to them much later but they had no jails but they had a whole system that maintained justice which involved reparations for crimes that you did, and if you killed somebody or you abused them or damaged somebody in in a certain way, the community would agree what needed to be done, and there were certain standard tariffs, if you like, and you had to make good to the party that you had wronged. And if you didn't, you shamed your own community. And if you shamed your own community, you would be ejected from it. You wouldn't be sent to prison. But it was a worse faith in prison because suddenly your community, everything you were plugged into, was lost. Um, now the the argument today is how do you do it in a big city? Well, today we have this amazing thing called the internet, which actually connects us globally, much more so than were ancient tribes in or that ancient tribes in Germany. We have that connection, and we see new ways of doing that where we have the free system And, and whether you're buying from amazon or ebay or various other online vendors they don't have prisons they don't have police but they've developed organic working systems to push people out of that business when they screw up when they don't supply the right goods and in the german tribes i was speaking of there's a lot of recorded evidence about that your reputation was the most valuable thing you had. Because if you lost your reputation, you were screwed. And you find that with Amazon traders. I've had problems and they've bent over backwards to sort them out and refund me the money or send me proper goods because they don't want their reputation tarnished. And that's that's the way that we approach these things. Um, I have a whole chapter in my book on how you might deal with more serious crimes. And again, you would you need a mechanism there that doesn't thrive upon crimes. And the suggestion I have, it's not my idea, it was taught to me by a man, Professor A.J. DeLambos, um, is that the insurance companies are the ones who have an interest in reducing crime. They, they insure us for all sorts of things, but they also insure us from being murdered Or robbed, and and if I take out an insurance policy today, and am murdered or run over by a bus tomorrow, they're gonna cover. um, If I had children and a family, they would cover their mortgages and school fees and so forth, ad infinitum. Um, And they really don't profit from crime. It's a bit like the old Chinese doctor that used to pay when you were well, and when you were sick. He didn't get paid. Well, in this case, you pay the insurance companies while everything's going hunky-dory. And if it's not, they pay you. And that's really where, I mean, they have a certain amount of, they do have some detective forces and they do go out and do that, but they can't, they can't really touch it because it's the province of the police normally. And that's a a long distance type of goal, but it's certainly um, a way it could be done. And if we had moral banks, and moral businesses, which isn't such a bizarre, unthinkable concept. It, it's sad that we think of those as unthinkable concepts. Um, but if you had a moral structure out there, then, without needing to to eject somebody from from your tribe, you can seriously hamper their ability to enjoy life with money, credit cards, shopping, and buying. You know, you can you can make it very, very difficult for for the criminal. Without actually locking them up in jail.
0: See, that makes sense. So you're not talking about a new coercive force, um, like you're saying the insurance companies might take over the role um, of kind of policing in some way, I suppose. But, but not for a non-coercive means.
1: Well, I could see. I, I have respect for the police, and for the concept of police, but the who's running them is the problem, and. One of the consequences of having the police forces thrive on crime is that we have this increasing volume of victimless crimes on the book, and on the books. And whether that's prostitution, gambling, recreational use of drugs, um, not having your children vaccinated, I have a criminal record for not filling in the census a few years ago. Um, that's madness. And if you had a police force that didn't thrive on crime, you wouldn't have this burgeoning of victimless crimes. And of course, they'd rather go after a pot smoker than somebody who's knifed, than a murderer. It's much easier. They come quietly and pay their fines and go to jail. They don't give the police difficult work to do
0: these examples i mean do
1: we actually have any examples of successfully run rulerless society in modern times has this ever happened has, has anyone ever tried it on a large scale you have florence in the 14th century and that was a city of some some 40,000 and they were one of the bases of the of the renaissance and They had hospitals, they had schools, they had a fully functioning society um, that was organized from the bottom up. It was based on communes, based on street level. Everybody was a peasant because there weren't lords and princes and kings involved, but peasants included jewelers, architects, furniture makers, bakers.
0: If, if they lived without a state, did they have an army protecting them from some other state coming in and taking them over? I mean, how did, they, how did they get
1: along? They might have hired armed men to protect them, but I think because they were such a center of trade, they were really valuable existing as they were to everybody else around them. Um, and they manage themselves through guilds, through business guilds. We still have guilds in some industries. When I um, extended my house, I hired an architect, and he belonged to an association of architects. And if he screws up, they're liable for it. And they used to have guilds for bakers, for, for every manner of business. You would join the guild, and, and that way you could have your reputation, your reputation guaranteed by somebody um, other than the state. Today we have the state imposing all sorts of regulations on food, the result is half the food that we purchase gets thrown away with this sort of imposition of sell-by dates and, and things that uh, a guild probably would never have come up with because it's quite senseless well,
0: stuff. Well this, this situation in Florence saying they may have had an armed protectorate force but they wanted to state in themselves but let's say, let's say um, I don't know, England we over here. So let's say England gets rid of its government completely, gets rid of its army, gets rid of its police force. Um, it What's to stop um, you know, some other country, France, China or whatever, yeah. just coming taking over and, and doing the exact same thing over and over
1: again? Well, that's what I get back to. The basic core function of the state is to protect us from other versions of themselves. Um, when they extend that... That's where we really have the problems. And, you know, how we get away from having states in an ideal world, I haven't got a de facto answer for that. But the first step is to start regarding them like King Canute, all-powerful, that they can do everything from sorting out unemployment to poverty to failing education standards to climate change. Because the only thing they do to solve those problems is take more money from us. So we need more money to deal with these problems. And that is the core reason, I argue, for most of the problems we suffer. Because we are very productive as human beings. We produce a lot of wealth when we convert trees into tables and plastic and metal into cameras and microphones. And we add value to the world and 50 to 60% of that value we earn is channeled into the state to and some of it comes back to us a lot of it goes into wars and new town halls and new regulations and prisons and police and, and military armament so that used to be 5 to 10% for centuries that was what governments would take total taxation from the population to protect us from other states now that is growing enormously but isn't, isn't their function not just to protect us from other states but each other i mean if we get rid of the state system
0: then let's say an armed gang from london come and take over london and then they're going to take over reading and they're going to take over everywhere else i mean w- wouldn't it just be a case of the strong ruling the weak i mean you know you see these post-apocalyptic movies where there's no government and no system mm. and you know armed gangs that go around and control everything and do terrible things i mean you know this philosopher thomas Hobbes is saying that you know, man's state of nature, as we say, solitary, brute, poor, and nasty, brutish, and shit. He mm-hmm. said, you know, without a common power to keep everyone in awe, we're in a constant state of war of man against every man. I mean, is that not the case? Do, do, do you think that we're actually capable of getting along without... You know?
1: within, within our national boundaries? Well, in England, to, to picking, I don't know if it's a, how unique an example it is, but we had, for centuries, for millennia, common land that people grazed their animals upon, that people used. And it wasn't until the 18th century, 18th and 19th centuries, that we had the Enclosures Act. So while you had lords and barons all over the country with their estates, they couldn't encroach on the common land. Because somehow, people wouldn't let them. And And that was maintained for centuries. When the Enclosures Acts came in, that was the central state, Saying, okay, we're taking this land, we're going to give it to the nobles to farm their sheep or their cattle on, and you're no longer allowed upon it. And people did rise up and try and stop that. But the state came in with their army, with their military, with the judicial, saying, ah, no, this is the law. We passed the law, this land is no longer yours. And that's the only way they got around, got away with this crime so it's not a question of we need government to protect the people the people had a really decent functioning system and it was you know made horrendously worse by the enclosures act
0: but then this is still the same question of whether whether um, people could get along without, without government intervention i mean what's the stop what's the, if we get rid of the government what's the stop um arm gangs from just going and taking
1: over. I mean how how does this how do we avoid that? Well that's the assumption that we're going to live out a Hollywood movie if the state goes down. When Iraq was destroyed by Operation Shock and Awe, Baghdad, the whole point was to destroy all the communications, transport, water, power, take out the whole infrastructure, and within a week, people got back to as normal as they could through cooperating with each other, helping each other out. That's that's the basic programming of human beings. We have a system, though, where the coercive, where if you like to put it simply, the criminals rise to the top. And, and that's not a good system. But but where you have a, a central authority who are able to take money from every member of the population to sort of take a share of their wealth or their produce without having to to, to put a gun to their head um, because they passed a law saying you must pay us this money. Well, that's that's a really desirable desirable position to be in where you don't have to work, you just demand money from people. So everybody wants to run that, whether it's Al Capone or George Bush and the military-industrial complex, once you get up there, you can then pass laws. Today, it's the corporations. And they want to have a handle on government to force us to take their drugs and their vaccinations and stop us to taking herbal medicine. And whilst it's, it's a nice idea, having a central coercive state to protect us, what they tend to do is enhance the abilities of criminals to take our, our land or our freedoms or our rights away. As long as those criminals are powerful and rich and under
0: corporate banners, I suppose.
1: Yes, they, they, they... I mean, the pharmaceutical industry has three lobbyists for every single member of, Congress, of, the, of the American Congress and Senate. Three people are devoted nothing but to putting the pharmaceutical industry's point of view to them. So how do, do you or I or somebody get through to them and saying, no, hey, I don't want my children to be vaccinated and this is why, because they've got three people telling them why your child should be vaccinated for the public good. Well, you are talking before about tax. I mean,
0: you know... When, when we do interact directly with the state, generally generally it's kind of through a kind of confrontation and coercion on their part. I mean, we go to them and uh, they're demanding tax from us and we have to pay them. Um, you know, we've got to pay their parking tickets, we've got to uh, do entry visas into the country and stuff. And no, nobody likes paying tax, nobody likes giving money for parking mm-hmm. tickets, no, nobody wants to put up with this. Um, but, you know, we do it because, one, we fear the repercussions, mm-hmm. right? Like, if, if we don't, they put us in jail or harvest. Um, But also we do it because of the greater good, right? I I mean, most people who I've talked to about paying tax actually don't feel that bad about it because they say, well, the money's going to schools and hospitals and roads and all these things. But, I mean, isn't that necessary? If if the whole tax system is gone and the government doesn't have the money and the government doesn't exist, I mean, who's building the roads, who's building the hospitals, who's, who's building the schools? I mean, who takes care of things without a state?
1: We used to always do that without a state right up to and beyond the beginning of the 20th century. We built hospitals, we built canals. Okay, roads is, has generally been government-built, but a road is just a flat piece of ground. It's a bit easier to build than a skyscraper or a, or a train system. Um, and to assume that we couldn't build roads, but we can build cars and all these other things it is a bit facile. And and as I say, we built massive infrastructures. Corporations would look twenty, thirty, forty years ahead and make big investments in these infrastructures for us. And and it's uh, we would build them. That's a simple answer to your question because we do and we have. But for, for profit motives, we build
0: them.
1: Or? Why not? Why not? Um, the the railways were built for profit motive. It was a it was the cheapest way. Of trans- Well, outside of ships, but on land, it's the cheapest way of transporting people and goods. Now, with the state still running, the, the, even though they've semi-privatized it in this weird structure, now it's cheaper to drive your vehicle with taxed petrol to Edinburgh and back than to take a train, which is, which is crazy. It's also, I go back to the farmer, you know instance you know who would support the farmers without the government they'd all go bankrupt my great grandfather spent 7 years on the land in wisconsin living in a cave digging up the trees and and pull, getting the rocks out of the ground to make this land farmable then he farmed it for profit built a house my my grandfather and my uncle floyd continued farming out of that they developed farms in nebraska and iowa farming cattle and pigs and corn and wheat and God knows what else, for profit. Now the government's involved in the agricultural system. All they grow is corn. If they try and feed their corn to their own cattle, they would lose money. They have to sell corn to these giant feedlots who get it at a government-subsidized price to feed their cattle. It's this crazy system where everybody loses money if the government doesn't pay them in subsidies in, in Europe, when the common agricultural policy, when they start talking about reducing subsidies, the French farmers go out and they block the streets with their tractors and dump manure in front of the parliament buildings, so and they say, "No, we must have our subsidies." It's a crazy situation, and whether you, however, whatever you apply it to, you get the unexpected results when you have the government involvement in business.
0: You we were talking also in your book a bit, a bit about mad cow disease as well. Um, and, uh, and uh, I mean, why, why was that happening? I mean.
1: Well, it's all part of this drive to have a more and more meat. It may be coincidental that a lot of Tory MPs had beef farms at the time, but it was thought to be in the public good, for the public good, for everybody to have you know, meat three times a day. As part of their food, so the whole system was was geared to massive meat production at minimal cost. Part of that involved feeding animal, you know, because they had a beef mountain. You know, the, the government would buy in any excess beef, milk, butter, or wine produced. And back in the 70s and 80s, we used to have wine lakes and butter mountains and all of this stuff. And one way to reduce the mountains was be, by feeding the cattle back. To themselves, and that's like producing a brand new automobile. If we subsidize, if the government was subsidizing the car industry, they produce a brand new automobile. The government would buy it, melt it down, and and give the scrap metal back to the car manufacturers to produce another car. How mad is that?
0: Well, okay. So, without the government, there would have been no man probably.
1: No, there wouldn't have been. Wouldn't have no so, so,
0: we can see that at least in the case of farming, they did a terrible job and screwed it all up, rather than anything. But we give them the money so that they can fix problems and make farming better. I mean, that's that's the that's the idea. Um, but okay, you're saying that if you take it out of government hand, then it can kind of organize itself and it can happen in a way that works without all the terrible problems. But here's one big question that a lot of people ask: mm-hmm. um, is what about Single unemployed mothers, the benefit system, the welfare state, people who lost their job and can't afford to eat. Mm-hmm. I mean, having, having all of this tax money goes towards the government that they can hand back to the people who need it. I mean, what happens to them? Are they cut loose? Are they going to just die on the street? I mean, is, there, is there Could we ever come up with something ourselves that would actually really do that out of the kindness of our hearts if there was no government involved? I mean, what, what do you think about that?
1: Well, yes, we are charitable people. It's part of human nature to help each other out and we still have countless charities out there, despite the ravages of government, where people give their money freely, whether it's to help children in in Africa or abandoned donkeys in the UK. That money goes out. I mean, our whole lifeboat system, the Royal National Lifeboat Institute, is run by private donations, not by government handouts most rural fire departments in America are run by donations rather than handouts and if we had 60 percent of the wealth that we created still moving about in society there would be that much less homelessness, unemployment and poverty going on because the money wouldn't be sucked out and also we would have, if the money wasn't sucked out there wouldn't be so much money locked away in overseas tax havens that people who make a lot of money could otherwise keep in this country and spend and you know move within the system in this country. It's like we still have these problems. We have poverty, we have unemployed, you know, homeless single mothers. But with the funds still in our society, we would have much less of this poverty. And and we'd also have more natural social government, natural self-government going on. And that might result in less homeless mothers. You do have a much higher proportion of children born to families in poverty than born to families who are you know, making money, paying taxes, doing you know high, highly paid jobs, because they don't get money for having children. This non-state we have, though, I mean, at least in the UK, it does a pretty good job
0: of giving everybody who needs money money. Well, almost everybody needs money money. Right? Yeah. Do you think um, that a stateless system would, could could or would do a better job? I mean, they've got almost infinite funds to, to spend on people if they
1: need to. Well, not infinite funds. They print money. Um, and when you print money, you are stealing from everybody. That's why counterfeiting up to the early 20th century, was a capital offense. Because when you just printed money, everybody's, the value of everybody's money went down. Now the state is printing hundreds of billions of pounds to keep up. And and anybody who's lived a diligent life and saved money and sees the value of it going down. Because that's, and at a certain point, you cannot continue with that. At a certain point, um the system will collapse. Every every system of fiat currency in history has eventually collapsed. And then when that collapses, there will be no money for single mothers, housing immigrants who haven't got a home, paying hospital bills. I mean I, I have to be, be honest. Um I've been eating natural organic foods, taking responsibility for my own health since I was quite young. And I resent having to pay for a heart transplant for somebody who has been smoking and drinking and eating hamburgers ad infinitum all their life. Why should I be responsible for their health on principle? And I was really impressed when I was in India where they have no NHS and they have no American Medical Association, which is a similar monopoly in America. And doctors are not paid like they're some sort of gods. Um, they, they get a good income, they, they're upper middle class, but you can afford in today's money in sterling, you can go see the doctor and it might be 20 pounds. Now a poor person can save up and do that. They're not gonna go when they've got a cold or they've sprained their elbow or something, you know, simple things. Um, but people can afford medicine. At the turn of the last century in America, mechanics earned more than doctors. And, and yet now we have this, this system where they are, they milk it for all their and I don't blame people when you've got a system and you can like squeeze money out of it with a high lobby. And, and shut down the competition, people are going to use that. But again, talking about medicine, we have this burgeoning in, in, in England and the UK of Chinese herbalists. All over, even small towns, have got Chinese herbalists that people can go to. They're doing really well. And when you consider the competition, is free. you go got the NHS for nothing, or you can go pay a Chinese herbalist. And they're doing really well. And if, if there was not this monopoly on health, I suggest that you could go see a doctor without it costing an arm and a leg. Well, uh,
0: the Chinese medicine thing, wasn't it a couple of years ago or three years ago or something, they made all herbs that don't have a, like a thousand year history of usage illegal in the UK or something like that? Something
1: like that, yeah. I mean, I used to buy um, a certain Chinese anti-inflammatory pill to use and... When that law was coming in, I, I, I bought in a whole box of it from, from Hong Kong. Um, it's still on sale. But yes, they have banned an awful lot of herbal remedies. And that's, again, lobbying from the pharmaceutical industry. They were beating on that door, because I've been involved in that industry much of my life. They were beating on that door for about 10 years. And for 10 years, the Health Food Manufacturers Association, the Herbal Practitioners Association, fought, fought it. But it was just just relentless, you know, millions, possibly billions, being spent by the pharmaceutical industry to to shut down the competition, and eventually they succeeded. Um, In the Middle Ages, herbalism was considered witchcraft. If you were found prescribing herbs, you were a witch, you got burnt at the stake, or or drowned. Um, Today, they don't burn you at the stake, but they burn your business, and they kill your occupation.
0: Well, okay, we have we have here an example of a very stupid law that's come in that just automatically makes all hubs that haven't got a certain number of years of usage mm-hmm. or whatever the, the technicalities of the law are. I mean, that's a silly law, but we've also got some very good laws. We've got laws that say some guy can't come and beat me up and steal my wallet on the street. I quite, quite appreciate that law because it may have stopped that from happening to me. I mean, what happens when we have no state? Who decides the laws? Do we even have laws? Are we a lawless society?
1: No, we've always had laws that developed from within that modulated our our behavior and we've always had ways of enforcing and dealing with those laws without having a system that profited from when somebody comes and steals your wallet in the in the street and people still will steal your wallet in the street i just think there are more effective ways of dealing with it and we don't even know what the crime figures are right now because the system has not. There's something called notifiable offences. So if somebody steals your wallet in the street, um, it's a notifiable offence and it becomes a rec- part of the recorded crime record. If somebody commits cybercrime, cyber cybercrime cyber, cyber is not a notifiable offence. So if they get your passwords and bank account details, and steal a hundred thousand pounds out of your bank account. It's not recorded. It's a crime. The police may, and they will, look into it, but whether they solve it or not, it doesn't go down in the record. And of course today, cybercrime has got to be the absolute burgeoning aspect of crime, because what tech-savvy kid who's grown up with computers all his life is going to choose to smash a window and risk getting beaten up by somebody in the middle of the night when they can just sit on their laptop and commit equally horrendous crimes or doing it from Russia or wherever. And I'm still trying to... Well, I guess the reason they don't make those a recordable offense is because we would see, we would then have a record of how crime has skyrocketed. with that sort of that sort of stuff going on, it's it's a staggering situation. But again, well, was why a, should they? long
0: before we, we started this interview about, um, for example, in Japan, a lot of the murders um, unsolved murders are marked down as suicides to keep like uh, figures of the uh, like murders artificially low. Yeah. And uh, you know, this happens in all, lots of different countries in uh-huh. lots of different ways. I mean, do you think a, a, a non-state run police force wouldn't be doing the same kind of stuff? And um, you know. Obs- what's the word? Obs-cating. Obscuring? Obscuring. 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 a difficult word, isn't it? Obscuring. The figures. I mean, would, would things necessarily be that much better without the state run system?
1: Yeah, they would be better. Because, well, if it was because going back to the insurance company, they've got no interest in locking up the wrong person because the reason they want to solve a crime is to stop it from happening again. Not just to get a, a tick on their record books, and so sure they're not going to um, ignore or deny that certain crimes have taken place, because all they're trying to do is to stop them from happening in the first place. Not categorize crimes as misdemeanors uh, because they're having to pay out. That's the the bottom line for them.
0: Well, how about crime on a larger scale? So, so we have. Um... Regulation, regulation on nuclear power and GMOs and CFCs and lead paint. Mm-hmm. We regulation to stop lead paint, so we don't get lead poisoning. I mean, that's a good regulation. I'm quite glad it was there. Um, but you know, if there's no government in place, who is regulating? How do we stop? How do we stop giant corporation from painting all our houses with lead paint because it's cheaper for them and they get more profit if they do so? Well,
1: we have this assumption that the government is the only only way to stop these things. And yet we see that with asbestos, asbestos was recognized in the 1920s as being a seriously health-damaging substance. It wasn't until the 1970s or 80s that it started to be taken out of, of, of products. And we have, you talk about, um, you know, we have things like fracking that there should be a law against it. There should be a law against people drilling under your house and damaging the the water table. But the government, in fact, subsidizes the people who do it and drags you away if you're trying to stop them and and puts you in jail. So trade guilds and the natural process would deal with a lot of these situations. We wouldn't have nuclear power at all if the government wasn't approving and subsidizing it. There's... No, no sensible business, um, and I've been in business, I, 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 and I've dealt with a lot of people in business, you have to have insurance. Because heaven forbid that one of your products kills somebody, you, know, you have to have insurance so that you can pay them the million or two million pounds, or whatever the damages are. Now, no insurance company in the world will insure a nuclear power plant. So no public, no private utility company would ever build a nuclear power plant because it could completely destroy them. No insurance company is going to cover it because how can you cover the loss of a whole city or a county of a, of a country? Um, GM Foods, same thing. No insurance company will will cover the possible liabilities of genetic, feeding genetically modified food. It's a completely untested experiment on people but the government says it's okay. Um, And if you had trade guilds that recognized such things as asbestos killing people, they would be the ones to self-regulate it. The people who make the insulation and put asbestos into products, But, but with the asbestos industry lobbying the government to say, no, this is okay then it gets delayed for decades.
0: Is the problem here not corruption, rather than it being a government? I mean, wouldn't the trade guild be susceptible to the same corruption of, you know, it's more profitable to use lead paint, so let's all just use lead paint and, you know, keep it under the cover that actually is dangerous? I mean, wouldn't we be seeing the same problems again?
1: No, I don't believe we would. Because they are part of our system. They're not outside of the system. And you have this thing called feedback loops that modulate all systems everywhere. And you know, the feedback loops: one thing happens, you respond to it, and the person who makes that happen, whether they, gets that feedback, and that's ever present. When you have the government involved, suddenly that feedback loop is completely broken, and you have people who are not connected to what's going on making decisions. Whether it's about lead in petrol and paint, or asbestos in household products, or adding fluorine fluoride to the water people are not connected so whilst you've got millions of people protesting about having their water fluoridated and pointing out how their their teeth are going rotten their horses are dying, the fluoride or the the fluoride industry lobbies the government and says no no and, and they, the government doesn't even get that feedback because they're getting constant stories saying there's never been any damage done by fracking for instance and when that's all the lawmakers are being told, they do not listen. They, they they haven't got any space to hear from the people who are damaged by being stuffed. So yes, a lot of these problems would be sorted out much quicker if the feedback loops between consumer and producer were were intact. I mean I, I've lived in London and we used to have the food in London used in England used to be notoriously bad. You had to go to a chemist to buy olive oil. You couldn't buy regular wine in an off-license. You'd get these fortified lot wine things like Sinatogen. You'd have to go to a Italian deli in Old Compton Street to buy a decent bottle of wine. And yet, the food, it's changed enormously now. And that's just people saying, we don't want this. I mean, kippers used to, the food industry used to start dying kippers. which is smoked um, herring, for those who don't know. Um, they used to be a real part of the British diet in the 50s. And then food technology came along and they figured out how to dip them in creosote and artificial coloring and make them look like herrings. And and it was a horrible degradation of it. And over 10 or 20 years, herrings just disappeared from the British diet. Because there's a feedback loop. They said, no, we're not going to eat this shit. Now it's a gourmet food. You buy proper herrings in farmers' market and places like that. So... So industry does respond.
0: But isn't that exactly why we have something like
1: the FDA and why we need something like the
0: FDA to stop people in the first place from putting kerosene on, on, on fish to make them appear darker? I mean, is, is it protecting us? Isn't
1: it- no, it's not. The, the food, one of the reasons that, um, we haven't discussed it in this interview, but my brother and I introduced, we're the first people to ever sell natural and organic foods in this country. My brother got interested in macrobiotics because he read that the FDA had raided a bookshop in New York, a um, Georgia Sawa inspired bookshop, and burnt the books that were there. Now, this wasn't the FDA, excuse me, this was the FBI at the time. It would have been the FDA today, because these books were saying that a diet of Coca Cola, hamburgers, milkshakes was not a good diet. It wasn't a healthy diet, and proposing that we eat whole cereals and beans and vegetables and seeds as a much better basis for our diet. They burned those books. Uh, we had trouble in this country with the British authorities. they trying to shut us down because they saw these foods as dangerous. There was a whole government saying this is a death diet. Um, someday, the government may ban pesticides. And everybody, and now I've been, you know, my descendants would be in an interview like this, like, well, what would we do if the government not banning pesticides? Well, it's the people who start buying foods without pesticides. That's how you ban pesticides, not by having the government doing it.
0: Well, I suppose also the, the FDA, um, one of the problems with an organi- organization like that is when they when they allow something that's actually harmful, then it takes away accountability from the company that produces it, like in the yeah. case of Aspartame or yeah. aspartame, like that. They're in the
1: hands of the big corporations, and as we know, there's a bit of a revolving door. A lot of the people running the FDA used to work for Monsanto, and some people leave the FDA and then Monsanto gives them big jobs as rewards for whatever, whatever they did. And whether they're acting with evil intent or not, I don't, I don't, I don't care. Um, they maybe do think that these things are best for us and that we should all have our children vaccinated. But the choice should be ours. That's the point I'm making. When the choice is ours, we have that feedback loop and things change much more effectively and much more quickly.
0: Well, there was an example. You remember the U.S. government shut down was it a year ago? Was it this year? When did that happen? They shut down. They ran out of budget. Maybe it was summer. They, they shut down for like a month. October 1st. Was that when it was? Uh, that was the
1: day that the uh, electronic edition of this came out on, a, on the same day the government shut down.
0: Correct. Well, um, you know, when it shut down, there was a salmonella outbreak of I mean, you know, that was pretty bad. If the government was running at that time, they would have immediately got on it and done and something about it. Um, so, so, what happens in your in your vision of a stateless society for things like that salmonella outbreaks, invasive species that come in? I mean, how, how do we protect against these kind of uh, big problems, or like epidemics or, you know, whatever, if there's no central state um, organizing everybody together to, to
1: act against it, The way we react to, to everything else. Um, when, a pl- when engines fall off of airplanes, they ground the whole fleet to find out what the problem is because they don't want it happening again. When Perrier, 20 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, they found some benzene in the Perrier. They recalled Perrier from all over the world. And and they lost, they, they were the dominant bottled water at the time, and by the time they got back on the market, they'd lost that bottled dominance. They didn't say, oh, benzene is less harmful than being stuck behind a uh, a bus with a bad exhaust. It's okay. Um, they didn't say like the British government dot did, oh, British beef is the safest in the world during the mad cow outbreak. All the government was doing was ensuring us that it's actually nothing wrong and we should continue eating British beef and the risk is minimal. Don't worry. Everything's going to be okay. Not many people realize that one of the legacies of mad cow disease is that the vast majority of the blood used in this country now for blood transfusion has to be imported because British blood is dangerous because of that legacy. The prions of mad cow disease are well distributed. So it's like they're the worst people to be dealing with these things because I mean, there has been, what are some of the recent things? Um, salmon, um, farmed salmon. The government or some government department about seven or eight years ago came out and said, This is really dangerous. You shouldn't eat farmed salmon more than two or three times a year. And whoever the scientist was who was ill-advised enough to open his mouth probably lost his job, and there was nothing more said about it. Um, I've read, again, from uh, the Institute of Tropical Medicines years ago, saying that when when a pregnant woman peeled potatoes, she should wear rubber gloves. Because the contact poison from the potato skin could damage the unborn fetus. but you don't hear—you haven't heard that repeated. Um, the last thing they want to do is to scare people about anything. Fukushima—we should all be really concerned about what is happening with Fukushima.
0: Well, like with the
1: British beef, there's
0: politicians on Japanese TV going and eating spinach that's grown locally next to the nuclear plant. Yeah, yeah. And saying it's safe, it's safe. Look at what we did. It's that's right. Important. That's right.
1: And. Um, so it just underlines my point that when you have that when people are responsible and they're connected to corporations you have a much better better reaction speed than than when the state is involved just trying to you know make people feel comfortable and say everything's okay
0: maintain the status quo yeah yeah well in your book, you go into chaos theory as being uh, a little bit about how it it's a system that naturally organizes everything i mean it, if we have no state then chaos theory will come through and everything will magically work somehow. yeah i mean could, could you go into that a little bit uh, chaos theory is a, is a nice word that I think everyone's heard, but I think very few people understand it okay.
1: well the rain like the rainforest is a, a very easy example um Because until we go in with bulldozers, it's all a very stable, harmonious system. And everything in there is interacting with everything else to create this harmonious system from the bottom up. There's nobody... Can you imagine if the European Union said, "Okay, we're going to build a rainforest. We'll put the rivers here. It's going to rain every day at 4 p.m. for 20 minutes. This volume of water will put the frogs here, the leopards and... um, Panthers here, and this is how we're going to set it up. Do you think it would work? I don't. I don't. Um, But it does work running from the bottom up. And the UK, I came to the UK in 1951, and they still had food rationing um, going on from the war. Because they had food rationing during the war. The war ended in 44, 45, and they still had food rationing going on five years later because they just could not imagine... How can people feed themselves if we're not running the system? It was inconceivable to them, even after that short, you know, it wasn't really even traditional, but they were also, they didn't want to lose their jobs. Um, and it was this thought, how can people do that? Well, that's chaos theory. That's how we do it. And you take a big city like, like London or Hong Kong, and there's you know 10 million people, all with their own taste, their own when they get hungriness, their own wallets, and they all get fed what they want, what they can afford, when they want it, by and large, um, without anybody organizing it. That's, a, that's Scientifically speaking, that's a miracle, until they discovered chaos theory or recognized the chaos theory, that things self-organize when you have the feedback loops in place. I know when they used to take Russian, I like Khrushchev visited America, I think it was in the 60s, and they took him to a supermarket and found out later that when he went back, he assumed they'd set that up, that it was a propaganda thing and they'd set up this whole supermarket just to make him feel little, because he couldn't imagine how that could happen without state planning. And, and that's, I mean our entire international airline industry arose because two bicycle mechanics built a heavier than air machine, the Wright brothers. Now, no stage did somebody say, okay, in 60 years' time, we're going to have networks in all the major cities of the world, and airports, and you'll be able to get from London to New York and back in in a day. Um, It just self-organized from the bottom up. Same with telecommunications. Phones used to be the province of the state because they like controlling communication, because once people start to communicate efficiently, suddenly we need the state much less, because we start to implement, enhance our ability to self-organize like that. You used to have to have a license to own typewriters in parts of Eastern Europe. Um, and the English controlled the radio, broadcast, television, and telecommunications for decades. Once they let go of control, we've got Endless radio stations, TV stations, cell phones, anybody can speak to anybody anywhere in the world. That's what—that's how we do it. And it's a very important thing.
0: But, but will things are always necessarily self-organized in a harmonious and happy way, I mean, let's say we get rid of the whole space system right now today. I mean, are, are, we, are we perhaps maybe too immature of a species to really take control of ourselves? I mean, I wonder, like, let's say some system comes in and access the new police or something like mm-hmm. that. You know, what, what's to stop them becoming despots that come and, you know, make everyone's life ruinous and horrible? I mean, uh, I wonder well, I wonder if that, that whole state system didn't exist at all, whether things would
1: organized in a way that's actually worse than it currently is. Only one way to find out. <laughs> um, and, and I'm not saying, you know, let's just get rid of the state. I mean, you can't you can get rid of the state like that. But what I am suggesting is that when they... A, we stop expecting them to solve the problems of the world. Because most of the problems of the world, when you get down to their roots, are caused by the state. By interference with the self-organizing capabilities of humanity. And A, stop expecting them to solve these problems. And B, stop... um, do whatever we can to well that that's actually the main the main thing to do. And when they do crumble of their own accord, as they did in the Soviet Union, as they did recently in Egypt, rather than saying, Okay, let's put somebody else in charge, the mechanism is all right, do things by force or we'll damage you somehow and take taxes without your permission and spend them on anything they like, rather than saying, Okay, let's tweak the knobs, get the right people in, and everything will be okay, start looking for solutions that come from us, solutions that are sustainable and that can work. In Egypt, they had a little window where the government was down, and now they've ended up with a democracy that gives them a choice of a military dictatorship or a religious fundamentalist state. And, And that's... That's what happens. Those organizations are the ones who end up running the state. There you've got religion or military. Here we've got one type of corporation or I don't know what the old term. In America, both parties are so similar now that and in the UK. Nobody really, nobody really cares about voting because what's the choice? Do you want cat shit or do you want dog shit on your plate? And some people say, no, I don't want either. <laughs> I want to choose my food.
0: People say they're two wings of the business party, basically.
1: Yeah, they're two wings of the same bird.
0: But, I mean, one thing we do have, though, is this power of voting. So, so if we don't like a particular government system, we could, in theory, vote them out and get in the monster-eating loony party, or someone who's going to completely do something completely different. Now, if there was no government system that we're voting in and out, then, you know, what if a giant corporation comes and takes control? We can't, we, we can't vote them out of it. I mean, right now in India, Coca-Cola goes in and buys up all the water mm-hmm. and sells it back at a higher price that people can't even afford to drink anymore. I mean, you know, if they if they did that on a larger scale and did it to the entire world, then, you know, we can never vote them out of power,
1: right? But that's, that's what's happening. We have the vote, and they are taking over the world. Um, and that's really sad. And, and the vote is... As Churchill said, democracy is the worst form of government ever invented, except all the other forms we've tried. And, you know, maybe there's something a little bit better than voting. Maybe voting on the Internet would be a little improvement, but it's still just tweaking the knobs. And, and voting, it's when you actually add up the population of a country and you deduct the people who can't vote because of nationality or age um, or because they're in prison... And the people who don't give a damn about voting and don't choose choose not to vote, or or some people are too apathetic to vote, you end up with maybe twenty percent of the population being the majority. So twenty percent of the population could decide that we all have to um, wear burqas or or on the other side that you know Islam is banned, you know, and you can have you can have you know small groups making ridiculous decisions about our personal freedoms, because they think, you know, we must either follow God's word or listen to the pharmaceutical companies or whatever it is. So it's just somebody's always going to run that. At at times in the past, it's been the church, it's been the military, it's been an oligarchy. In Indonesia today, it seems to be out-and-out gangsters running it who actually say as much about themselves. So it's, you know, whether we've got pharaohs or kings, I mean, occasionally you'll get a good pharaoh, a good king, a good leader, like Gandhi. Gandhi, I think, was a great leader. But when he dies, it's just back to the same old stuff. Well...
0: I mean, do you actually have a, a full working design for a new system? Does anyone have that? I mean, like, if we, if we completely get rid of the state structure now, um, we've seen in, in very small tribal societies in the past that can work, or oh, so right. in Florence that it could work, um, surrounded by other state structures. I mean, do we? Do, is there a real kind of design for a system that we can begin to try and implement if we wanted to?
1: Well, the, um, I mentioned this, uh, Professor Galambos, who, who I took, who. Open my awareness to the negative power of coercion and the impossibility of this system ever really producing results we look for he was a had been an astrophysicist and then he turned his mind after the second world War to figuring out how he could stop anything like that happening before and he did create very specific structures that would deal with the sorts of things that the state deal with, insurance companies dealing with crime and punishment, was one of them. Um, I didn't take all of his courses and I don't believe that we need to actually figure it out in advance because people are really good. This is what we're very, very good at. And I, I did use the example of the internet, which to date has been pretty free of Governmental control, they don't know how to legislate it, and you see and there's an enormous amount of business being done on the internet, and those businesses, the successful ones, have found ways to manage what we would regard as criminal behavior in in the uh, physical marketplace without resort to police or or the coercive skills of the state and that's that's a big thing for them to have achieved and it's not like they even set out to do it it 's just a way. They develop their systems. How do we deal with with this? Okay, this is a good way. And I do believe that we have the, uh, the power to do that when the need is there, and the need is certainly there. We all recognize that there's a need for that, but we want the people doing that to reduce the incidence of crime and bad doings, rather than actually see it increase, as it is with cybercrime. Police get more budgets. More and more force, more and more laws, and yet crime is on the up. There might be less murders, there might might be less murders, house breakings, and muggings, but that's more than offset by cybercrime, which they choose not to make a record of.
0: You say you say we need we need to you know
1: things are very bad at the moment. Mm-hmm. You know, the environment's more destroyed, and
0: we're we bad things on the current system. Um, so, you know, what does the transition look like to you? Is it is it like the anarchists wanted a violent revolution? Is it a collapse, a financial collapse that brings them to their knees and something's born? Like is it a change we all make slowly? I mean, what is the transition?
1: I think, I think the transition is to not replace them with another version when they collapse. Um, and And they will collapse. We have seen some governments collapsing. And that is the message I'm really putting out there is don't just tweak the knobs and put somebody with a nice face and good ideas in there. Because that doesn't work. We've tried that. It might work for 10 or 20 years. You might see an improvement. You might see a reduction of state interference. In America, God knows how many presidents have come in on the ticket of reducing government. Governments never reduced. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger because there's no marketplace to manage it. Um, you know, you're forced to buy the product. Everything else we deal with, if it doesn't deliver what we want, it diminishes. And you know, we've seen a lot of industries disappear from the face of the earth when computing came in. Um, some survived, some didn't. But the state just goes on and on and on. Well then, you know, finally, what what can we do to get rid
0: of it? What, it? Do we do anything about it? Do we just sit and wait for it to collapse and then try something new, Hopefully, bound together and try something
1: new? Is there something that Bob down the street that I can do right now? Well, we, we stop, we first of all lose the mental headset that believes we must have a state. Who else would deal with global warmings, with the purity of our food, with the way we generate power? Um, with the way we educate our children, because we are people, they are people, but we are people who are connected with those things, so it's it 's not expecting them to do it. They live on our expectations, and you know without that, without that they they really do lose their power because they get the power from us and and they don 't deserve it and we we should stop giving it to them and stop trying to tweak the knobs and adjust the levers to make it work because that's not going to make it work and it, it's not working at the moment we can see that very clearly and so much of our money is being done to spent to aggravate problems things we don't want um whether nuclear power and fracking are two ones that are currently on the horizon but there are there are many I mean, they tried to save our fish and they end up dumping half the fish that fishermen catch in the ocean. I mean, it's they try and make our fuel greener and we have biofuels that take more energy to produce than petrol in most instances and that are taking land away from tribal, tribal groups in Africa and South America are being kicked off their land to grow food that is then being fed to, to cars Instead of people, and it's you know when we ask them, when we expect them to, to solve our problems, they generally make them worse.
0: So the quintessential message is: um, Do we need a change of mindset? Basically, that, that's what you get. Stop
1: giving them power, and when they collapse, try and do something else. I mean, there's no way to overthrow them. I have a cute little uh, idea in my book, which is called the One Less Party. It's a political party where the candidate for parliament or the senator, Congress promises, signs an oath saying they will do nothing whatsoever um, as a member of parliament. They won't go. They won't take salary. They won't pay staff. They will be one less politician. And I think emptying a seat of parliament without using a bullet or a bomb to do it would be a huge statement. It would, it would send you know, shockwaves across the world. Maybe these guys will start looking for real jobs. I don't know, but that's it's a, it's a frivolous but positive, um, suggestion, and that's uh, to maybe help start the ball, get the ball rolling.
0: I like uh, one of the quotes I saw in your book. Uh, you're talking about is don't vote it only encourages them.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's been known for a long time.
0: <laughs> well, anyway, thank you. Okay. okay. So to anybody listening. Greg's book, The State is Out of Date*, is absolutely fantastic. I love it. I recommend it to everybody, and you should all give it a read if you find these ideas
1: interesting. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Luke. A pleasure.